the literature suggests that sometimes people with anxiety live longer. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. I've been working in the field of nutrition and mental health for the best part of a decade. So I am really excited to share this conversation with you guys today. We need the right foods for our body, the right exercise and enough sleep. But what if we applied the structure and routine into keeping our mental health in good shape? And why do so many of us leave it so late to acknowledge our mental health? Well, today I am very excited to be joined by Felice Jacker. She is a professor of nutritional psychiatry and an expert in how food can drastically support and improve your mood. What are some of the most common mental health problems that are linked to diet? Well, it's more what we've studied in relation to diet and mental health. Because the field of nutritional psychiatry is relatively new, so it's just over a decade old, which is not very old in scientific terms, most of what's been studied to date is around what we call the common mental disorders. So that's depression and anxiety disorders. And they are really common. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're usually in about uh, the top five causes of disease burden. But then, of course, poor diet and the things that come from poor diet um, are the leading cause of illness and early death. So the fact that those two things are linked is really important. From research that I've read, there's a huge link with depression, but there's less of a link, or maybe I've just seen less research linked to anxiety? It's a a really good question. So we do have um, some studies that have also looked at anxiety and seen similar types Mm. of relationships. But I think what is interesting is that sometimes you see what's called a J-shaped relationship. And this is the interesting thing about anxiety. People who are very anxious sometimes are very health aware. And they are, in fact, the literature suggests that sometimes people with anxiety live longer And that's because they really pay attention to their health behaviours and they go and see the doctor if they've got a twinge and they, you know, they're focused on how they're feeling. And the problem with that in relation to diet is that people can get way too hung up on it. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes people who are very anxious, they can have really good quality diets, but it'll be tipping over the edge into the sort of orthorexia eating disorder Mm. land where they're really so focused that it's not healthy. It's a new term that's come around probably in the last five years, orthorexia, around eating clean foods. I think I was very much associated to it with the rise in social media being within the modelling world, um, Mm. being scared of eating certain foods. So I do think actually it's really important we just caveat that and just touch upon that, that actually what we're going to discuss today is not around cutting out food groups. It's not around kind of... um, labelling food groups is bad at all. It's actually the opposite. And we want to be including as much diversity into our foods as possible. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at um, all the literature from nutritional psychiatry, the observational literature, that's where we don't experiment. We're just observing what people eat, their mental health, linking them using statistics. So this is large groups of people. What we see right across the world is that people who have healthier diets, and I'll talk about what they are in a minute, are less likely to develop depression and, when it's been studied, anxiety. And that's not explained by things like their education or their income or their body weight. It's quite independent of their body weight. So this is a really important thing for people to understand. It's not about your body size, not about the way you look. It's about um, two things, eating enough of the foods that we know are really critically important to make your body and brain work properly Mm -hmm. and 
avoiding the foods that we know have a direct detrimental impact on on the gut and the body and brain, and and they're really in the ultra processed foods area. Yeah. Some listeners might be a little shocked because I might cause a bit of a stir here, but I really want to reframe the importance of the quality of our diet and how that plays because I grew up um, in the 90s and I grew up very much around the calorie counting era, Mm. very much the Weight Watchers, the Slimming World, all of these kind of conversations around calories and diet and body shape and, and I restriction. think restriction restriction and punishment and, and punishment 100 <laughs> and also empty foods yeah. you know these Weight Watchers foods a lot of them were processed heavily processed mm. um, and it wasn't about the quality of our no. food and I think that's so important because the more I got to learn about nutrition and the more around how our brains are 60 percent fat and we need to feed that and not fear fat I feel like we've come a long way since then. Um, And you've just made a really good opening statement that it's a really new field, nutritional psychiatry, 12 years old. Yeah, 12, 13 years. And and that's new in scientific terms. And in fact, though, we've done a lot in that time, which is great, but there's still a long way to go. And so let's just reframe this calorie counting era because it's something that I really want to make sure that we kind of start off with. That yeah. actually, as you said, it's not just about, it's not about weight loss. Even now, there's still such an emphasis when you think about policy or, um, you know, in the public sphere, the conversation, as soon as they talk about diet or the food environment, immediately they link it to obesity. Mm-hmm. Immediately. It's a ridiculous endpoint. It's ridiculous. Firstly, it's very stigmatising. Secondly, body size is very genetically determined. And if you are living in an environment where you're not having to chase, um, you know, elephants to feed yourself and you've got food available to you, you will reach a larger body size. It's very difficult to change that. So what Mm. happens is that people give up and they stop even hearing the messages because they think I'm a failure or I can't lose weight, so I might as well just keep eating milkshakes, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing to do with your body size. It's everything to do with nurturing all of those systems in the body that we know are so important for our mental and physical and every other bit of our health. Mm. And I think that I've always visually thought about it as having a car. And now I've just, I've got an electric car in the last few years. So trying to put petrol into my electrical car, Mm. just it will not run, it will not work. And I try to think about the human body in a very similar way. If we're not feeding it the nutrients that it needs, slowly but surely over time, it starts to kind of break down and we start to show symptoms. And I think this is where it's really interesting to kind of bring in the importance of mental health and our diet because for so long there hasn't been a link. And in the last 10 years, we've now started to speak a lot more about Mm. other ways that we can actually treat and support our mental health and preventative ways. And before we get into that, I think it's really interesting to hear your journey into this Um, because this was actually your second career. Yes. (laughs) And now you've become renowned in this field. And I mean that because I have, we're going to talk about the trials that you've done and and all the things you've done since and before kind of the, the, the big trial landed. But you have had a really interesting journey and I'd love for you to share your story into this with our listeners. 
Thank you for listening so far. Now, I've been a customer of Arena Flowers for a very long time. So having them finally sponsor Live Well Be Well is utterly amazing. And I have a special discount code just for you guys. A big part of my self-care routine is self-love. And having flowers around my home, like you can see in the background if you're watching this on YouTube, is the perfect way to achieve that. Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their packaging is free from single-use plastics. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet, use the discount code LWBW50 for 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Make your first order now by clicking the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. I came, like a lot of people, from a very um, kind of tumultuous and non-orthodox um, family environment where my father was, he was a naturopath and he thought that vaccines gave you autism and that, you know, he had some funny ideas. But on the plus side, he really did feel and believe that food and nutrition were absolutely central to, to, to health. And he put them um, front and centre. Unfortunately, in those days, that meant a very strict vegetarian diet for me, and I certainly didn't get the nutrition that I needed. And I think by the time I got into adolescence, I was very malnourished, and mm. I was also extremely anemic. And this is often the case for young women, is that they, um, if they're not eating enough red meat, and for me, I wasn't eating any at all, and I was eating a very limited diet, um, I was very anemic once I started menstruating and I also had a strong family history of a severe major depressive disorder. So at about 12, 13, uh, which is often the time that these disorders first appear, particularly for young women, um, I developed severe panic disorder and I didn't know what it was. I mean, mm. this is back in the 70s, so I had no idea. And then a couple of years later, that sort of turned into major depressive disorder. And I experienced that over my whole adolescence and, and really quite severely. But of course, in those days, no one knew anything about mental health. I didn't know what it was. But because of my experience with um, severe mental health problems during adolescence, I was very interested in psychology once I started to sort of read up a bit. And when I got to my late teens, I started running every day, you know, five kilometres, not marathons or anything. That really, really helped. And I also started eating a bit of red meat. I think that probably helped. And I started to get better. Uh, when I was in my early 30s, I went back to university to study psychology. And it was interesting because I was doing psychology and I thought, well, I don't really want to be a psychologist, but I am very interested in the sort of the medical side, like the brain and, and also the statistics, mm. which led me very accidentally into research. And once I came into psychiatry research, I sort of looked around and went, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a thing. And where's all the the, the literature? Where's all the, the studies on diet and mental health? Mm. And they just weren't there. There were isolated ones where they looked at particular nutritional supplements. Mm -hmm. Supplements are not diet. They're not mm -hmm. foods. Very different. Mm -hmm. There were some epidemiological studies. Again, they're the non-experiments where you just link two things at the level of the population using statistics. And But they'd looked at individual foods or things like folate or just bits of mm -hmm. diet. And, of course, we don't eat just omega-3 fatty acids or fish or folate. We eat these really complex diets. Mm -hmm. And at around this time, this was sort of the early 2000s, there was this growing understanding that our immune system was very important in our mental health, mental and brain health, in a bi-directional way. 
there were also these really cool new studies coming out of um, America, animal studies showing that this key region of the brain, the hippocampus, which we just recently discovered actually puts on new neurons throughout life, was very plastic and could be affected quite quickly by diet. And then the hippocampus itself is is very important in learning and memory, but also in mental health. And then there were other just little bits of research, you know, this growing field of epigenetics, starting to understand that our genes aren't sort of written in stone because we can turn them on and off and diet affects those. So diet affects your immune system, the brain plasticity, your epigenetics, probably your stress response system. There were all these little bits of information and it was starting to look like, oh, here's an idea. Maybe mental health doesn't just exist in the brain. Maybe we are one highly integrated, sophisticated system. And food is the petrol, as you said. It is absolutely the petrol that drives just about every process in the body and brain. So I suggested doing a PhD, looking at this, and my PhD study had a big impact. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry because it was the first study to look at this link between overall diet quality. So Mm -hmm. not just little bits of diet, but actually the whole thing and how that related to clinical depressive and anxiety disorders. And then on the basis of that, I was able to go and extend that work, looking at adolescents, looking at um, children and early life, you know, like Mm -hmm. what mothers eat during pregnancy, what children eat in the first few years, and then right up at the other end of life as well. You know, as you get older, often people will develop depression for the first time, and diet seems to be linked to that as well. Then I founded a society, the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, to try and bring people together to really catalyse more work in this area. And yeah, and then in 2017, I, well, I published the SMILES trial, but I also set up the Food and Mood Centre, which is now where 50 odd people, researchers and doing a whole host of really cool research. (laughs) And so, mm. I mean, pioneering (laughs) everything that has been so close to my heart for the last decade. And just hearing you talk about it and your personal experience, one, thank you for sharing that, because I think I've taken a long time to talk about my own journey into this. Um, and so it is a very vulnerable space because I still hope to think the stigma it is dying down in this era, but there is still a very vulnerable part to talk about it. I know this is kind of like a broader question, but how now after all of this time do you approach your diet and mental health? Are you still running? Well, yeah, I, I've. <laughs> as you get older, <laughs> your back gives out, so I, I do my best. But I'm very active, you know, like I walk a lot. I, I try and, you know, I take the stairs, <laughs> all those <laughs> sorts of things. That is what Audrey Hepburn said. Yeah. She always said, I never went to a gym, but I take the stairs everywhere. And it remains in my mind. Yeah, that's right. I just, you know, and I love, I live by the coast and, and near the bush and I just go walking as much as I can. But I love food. And when I say food, I mean food, not yeah. pretend food, not yeah. Franken food. You yeah. know, I love, nothing makes me more excited than a big pile of all these different coloured vegetables on the table and lentils and beans. My friends call me Professor Beans. That's when they're not <laughs> calling me Professor Poo, which is the other thing because of the gut microbiome. I would love if I you as Professor Poo. <laughs> So to me, like my and my youngest daughter's the same, you know, for me, cooking and preparing food and it's not fancy. I am no Ottolenghi by any stretch of the imagination, but I just love preparing good food for myself, the people I love. And it's very simple. It's sort of like, you know, beans and veggies really. And, you know, a little bit of um, in Australia, we have an introduced species, deer, 
and they're a huge environmental pest. And because I live down near the Otway Rainforest, there's a f- someone down there who goes out and he shoots them on his property, butchers them and freezes them and then sells them. And to me, that ticks all the boxes. It's ethical. Mm-hmm. It's environmentally sustainable. And the, f- the food would be very healthy because it's not eating industrial feed, it's it's living in the forest and eating the um, plants that come from the soil that is rich in microbes and fungi and all of the things that we are missing in our industrial diets. So I have a bit of that, but it's very, it's simple food. It's not very expensive food. Um, and it gives me great pleasure both to prepare it and to eat it. <laughs> I'm trying to find this question, actually, and now it's, it's come a bit earlier, but somebody wrote, or actually someone threaded me. Here it is, Neville Martin. So he asked me on threads, he said, why do I get tired when I eat bread, pizza, potatoes, and all the tasty stuff, yet I can eat as much meat as I want, and I can never, and I never get sluggish? Just hearing your comment then, I thought, what a good moment to actually ask that question to oh, you. Oh, that's a good question. I think people vary a lot in the way that they respond to particular foods. And it's, uh, you know, bearing in mind that my background is psychology and not nutrition. I've got lots of amazing nutrition researchers in my team. It's probably something to do with the amino acids and the carbohydrates and the way tryptophan fights with, you know, um, to get into the brain and tryptophan can make people sleepy. And when you have carbohydrates, more tryptophan gets into the brain and makes Mm -hmm. you sleepier. That's Mm -hmm. my understanding of it. But really, I'm not the expert on the the deep biochemistry. That is true. I can say that's correct as a nutritionist. Yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) I got that right. People often talk about the fact that, oh, I switched to a carnivore diet and I've never felt better or I've stopped eating grains and blah, blah, blah. When you know about the gut microbiota and how important it is to have a really diverse, rich, resilient gut microbiota, and just what industrial food does to a gut microbiota and how if you've got a gut microbiota that's more like a desert than a rainforest mm. and you introduce oats, barley, I don't know, any sort of complex carbohydrate, which is bacteria food, mm-hmm. you don't have the bugs there to break it down properly. You mm. get a stomach ache, you get inflammation, you feel terrible mm. because your, your gut bugs are just not there to mm. break it down. It's a major, major issue. So people then avoid the foods, the very foods that they need to be eating. They say, I can't eat beans, I can't eat lentils, can't eat, you know, and they go, I'm, on, I'm gluten-free or whatever. And really, as one of my postdocs says, the answer to a problem with beans is more beans. It's not, <laughs> not fewer beans. <laughs> but how you actually go from a desert-like state to a more diverse, healthier microbiome, that's one of the key questions mm. in the field, you know, for... Some people, we think, based on just the animal evidence, that they may even need poo transplants. Well, if this is one of my questions. Yeah, but for others, hopefully it would just be very, very gentle, slow introduction of diverse types of foods with complex carbohydrates alongside fermented foods, again, in tiny doses. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's been one recent study, it's quite small, but it's um, recently suggested that if people increase the intake of their fermented foods, so that's the things like kombucha, kefir, yogurt. Sauerkraut. um, Sauerkraut, love sauerkraut. Um, (laughs) I had to learn to like it, mind you. Um, (laughs) It does smell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it it can taste so good, uh, especially with eggs. But anyway, Mm. um, (laughs) that seems to help increase microbial diversity of the gut. 
And so that starts to give you that more diverse gut microbiome. Mm. Now, this is really important because, I mean, apart from leaving mental health out of it, we know that in cancer, a healthy, diverse gut microbiota seems very closely linked to your outcomes of treatment, Mm -hmm. particularly if you're having immunotherapy, but all sorts of treatment in cancer. Wow. And this is not just coming from animal studies or a test tube. This is coming from large human studies. You want a healthy strong, diverse microbiota because it's linked to better health outcomes across the board, cancer, mental health, um, diabetes, obesity. I mean, everything you can think of. The Pretty much the only way to get a really good, healthy, diverse gut microbiota is to have a diverse diet. And mm-hmm. it's a diet that's diverse in plant-based foods. doesn't mean you have to be vegetarian or vegan, but just whole foods. And I would say throw in a bit of fermented foods as well. Fermented foods, it's a big one, isn't it? And yeah. it's really coming into feeding feeding the gut. And it was one of my kind of big main topics that I wanted to touch upon today. Mm. And I love that, you know, you referenced the reasons why, obviously, Neville, that is his name, Neville Martin, has um, maybe less discomfort when he's on meat. And I think what's really important, just to kind of caveat that, is that we're all so individual. But so many of the times, these processed foods also cause such big sugar spikes, yeah. And so we're going through this kind of roller coaster yeah. of glucose coming up and down, up and down, yeah. which again is exhausting. Um, and again, that can be quite linked to, to mental health because if you're having moments where you're feeling a release of glucose, but then you're dropping them very rapidly, you feel exhausted. And then mm. the first thing you want to do is maybe reach for something that's similar to that again to give you a boost and to give you some energy. It was such a big question to kind of bring into this because there's so many different answers that can basically display into because that. Because diet is so complex. complex. We know that the brain is probably the most complicated thing in the universe. Like mm-hmm. we know more about the wider universe and the galaxy than we know about the human brain. But diet as an exposure is probably the most complex thing that we're exposed to. Mm. And if you think about nutrition science, what you probably learnt at university is probably already outdated. Yeah. Because the focus has been for so long on nutrients, macro, micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, protein, fibre, blah, blah. Plant foods, we now think, might have as many as 150,000 different phytochemicals in them. And we're only just starting to scratch the surface. We know about 8,000 of the polyphenols. We don't know how they interact with each other or with health, but we know they're really important for the gut microbes, for all sorts of processes in the body. And then they all sit within a food matrix, you know, an apple or a banana or whatever. It's a complex food matrix that those phytochemicals sit within. They may be more important than all those other macro and micronutrients. 100%. There is, you know, so much that we don't know. How all of this interacts with each other is so complex. And then not to even start to think about how the food is grown because that is so critical. The microbes in the soil, the bacteria and the fungi, they talk to each other around the roots of plants and that communication is what gets nutrients into the plants, gets phytochemicals into the plants, we eat the plants, livestock eat the plants, if they're lucky, <laughs> that influences our health. Now, yeah. our food is not full of phytochemicals and nutrients anymore because of the way we're growing it. And I ha- tell you what, the livestock are certainly not full of the, the healthful things that they mm-hmm. should be full of. Instead, they're full of antibiotics and nasties that you really don't want or, you know, lipid profiles that are not what they would normally have in nature, you know, Mm. these sorts of things. So 
what your food ate is really important. I'm actually reading a really good book about that at the moment called Exactly That, What Your Food Ate. Amazing. Yeah, it is. We had a whole conversation with Dan Saladino, who I know you've just spoken to, um, and also Arizona Muse, who does a lot around biodynamic farming and the importance of our soil for our food as well, and also for, you know, climate change. And then we also spoke to Sarah Berry, who I know kindly introduced us for season eight on the the importance of the food matrix. Like, all of these things are so important before we even get to choose what we're going to eat. Yeah. So if you look at the literature in nutritional psychiatry, not only is the quality of people's diets linked to their risk for common mental disorders, independent of all those other factors that I mentioned, but there's two aspects to it. One is not enough of the good stuff, so not enough of the foods that have got those phytochemicals, that have got all the different diverse different types of fibres. Um, that have got all of those mono and polyunsaturated fats that we know are really, really important, um, that have whole proteins and everything. So not getting enough of those is linked to worse mental health outcomes. And then independently, having foods that have added sugars, added salts, not to mention ultra-processed foods. So you've got emulsifiers and herbicides, pesticides, food colourings, artificial sugars, trans fats, all of these things that can mm-hmm. make their way into these pretendy foods, mm-hmm. you've got a direct detrimental impact of those with all of the multiple constituents of those foods that seem to affect the gut microbes and the health of the gut lining and all these other things in the body. And they're not just the opposite of each other. People could be eating lots of healthful foods at home, maybe like young people, but then going and having all this other stuff um, before, during, after school. Mm. Or you get a lot of older people who might not be going out to, you know, junk food restaurants or eating lots of crisps, but then getting a very narrow diet, you know, a white foods diet, white bread, sausages, so they're not getting enough of the good stuff. Both things independently are really problematic. So, again, diet is so complex. Mm -hmm. Studying it is really, really hard. But the principles, I always say, you know, the... The gut microbiome is so complex. Immunology is so complex. The brain is so complex. Food is so complex. But what you need to eat for health is actually really simple. Lots of different types of plants. Um, You can have a bit of red meat as long as it's not a processed one. And then, you know, avoiding those ultra-processed foods. And I would suggest throwing in a bit of the fermented foods as well. So they're actually really simple principles. Yeah. And getting enough exercise. Yeah. And getting and enough sleep. Sleep. <laughs> sleep. It's the big one. It's a really big one. <laughs> because also that affects the food choices. If you're tired and Absolutely. you wake up exhausted, you have your gremlin. But I like to call it gremlin because it is a genuinely a gremlin. It's a hormone that comes out. Basically, it's a neurotransmitter that makes you feel very hungry and crave those mm. carbohydrates. So there's, you know, real biochemical reasons on why you're really wanting that croissant or, you know, something that's very sugary in the morning if you wake up exhausted. Research shows that if you're tired, like if you've had less than your seven and a half hours sleep or whatever, you'll eat, I don't know, I forget the figure, but at least 30% as much over the course, uh, more over the course of the day, possibly mm. more. Mm. You're more hungry. Yeah, exactly. And I think this brings me on to so nicely to actually talking about the SMILES trial because... I had to wait for this, but now I feel like it's the right moment because this was such a big part in kind of my journey to understanding more around mental health and nutrition and bringing those together, which for me have always been such an important link. 
And if I just before we go into this, talk about actually why this is so important. In England, it is estimated that one in six people in the past week experience a common mental health problem. So when we think about IBS and we talk a lot about IBS. Mm. It's actually one in 10 people with IBS, but it's one in six people with a mental health problem. Yeah, it's still so stigmatized. And I think we talk more about gut health problems than actually about mental health problems, even though they're very much closely related. And mental health problems, they are on the rise. And one in five deaths is associated with poor diet. So I'd love for you to talk about the SMILES trial and actually the incredible results that you saw. But then I know a lot of studies since then have also had similar results as well. So it's not just your trial as well. Yours was, I guess, the pioneering one that stood for front and centre. But since then, there's been a whole plethora of research that's come out also supporting very similar results. So would you be happy to talk us through this? Sure. Show yourself some love and buy some arena flowers today. I have made them a vital part of my own self-care routine. So don't wait for someone else to give you that. Use the code LWBW50 to get 50% off your first three subscription boxes. So as I mentioned, I did my PhD looking at the association between what people eat and their likelihood of having a, a clinical depressive or an anxiety disorder. Then I went on to do a whole lot more of this observational research and I looked at mothers' diets during pregnancy, children's diets, adolescents' diets, older people's diets, again and again and again, seeing mm. this association independent of all those other very important factors that you need to take into account. But in science, you can't say that a correlation equals causation. Mm -hmm. So the things might be associated with each other, but it doesn't mean one causes the other. So to be able to say that, you need trials. Now, trials are very difficult for a whole host of reasons. Usually they're very expensive. Mm -hmm. But also, if you think about diet, you can't readily or easily blind people to what they're getting. Um, diet itself is so complex. How do you do this? Anyway, so I just got my PhD. I was about a year out and I thought, we really, really need to do a trial. I don't know anything about this, but I'm just going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> We're angels fear to tread. That's always been the way I seem to have gone. So I designed the protocol for the SMILES trial. And basically the idea was to test the hypothesis that if you took people who already had clinical depression and you helped them to make improvements to their diet, that it would actually help to treat their depression. And so I designed a, a protocol and I got lots of input from lots of people who knew much more than I did about clinical trials and things. And what I did was I recruited people with moderate to severe major depressive disorder. So many of these people have been sick for a very long time. Most mm. of them were on other forms of treatment, antidepressants, psychotherapy, both, you know. But for and as is often the case, people hadn't got benefit or they hadn't fully recovered or so they were still pretty sick. They were randomly assigned to see either a dietitian for dietetic support or um, someone for social support, it's called. It's a, it's a social support protocol. It's often used as a control condition in psychotherapy trials because we know that social support is really helpful for people with depression, just having someone to talk to. Mm. And then for a period of 12 weeks, people either saw the dietitian or the researcher for the social support. And the dietitian basically did what dietitians do, which is just worked with the individuals, took a good diet history, started to help them to set some goals. You know, 
increase uh, their fruits and vegetables, increase legume intake, for example, nuts, extra virgin olive oil, some fish, but really importantly, working on reducing their intake of of unhealthful foods. We call them Mm. discretionary foods. So, you know, cakes, biscuits, crisps, these sorts of things, sodas, etc. And over 12 weeks, the dietitian just did that. So what we found was, A, people were able to change their diet. Once they knew that it might be connected to their mental health, they were really keen to do it. But also, more to the point, once they got the proper support to do it, Mm. they were really keen. We saw a major, major impact on their mental health. And I have to say, because we had so much trouble recruiting people, because I don't think anyone thought that diet would be a good treatment. Um, I don't think clinicians believed it either. So they didn't sort of refer patients to the study. So we really, it took us over three years just to recruit the people that we did recruit. Because it was a smaller sample size than what we'd hoped for, we didn't expect to see a difference in the Mm. groups, but we did. We saw a major difference. So um, about 8% of people in the uh, social support group um, experienced a remission of their depression, but more than 30% of those in in the dietary group did. Very large, what we call effect size. But what we saw that was very important, I think, was that the degree of change in people's diets was very closely related to the degree of improvement. So basically, the more they improve their diet, the more their mental health improved. We did a, a detailed cost effectiveness analysis. And what we found was there was about a $2,500 cost saving per participant in the dietary group. And that's because they were getting a global benefit to their functioning, their daily roles. They lost less time out of their daily roles. They saw other health practitioners less often. And we also did a detailed cost analysis and we found that the diet we were advocating for was actually less expensive than the junk food heavy diet people were eating when they came into the study. Because we're saying things like, look, make it simple, make it affordable. Frozen vegetables, fantastic. Dried uh, and tinned beans, legumes, brilliant. Tinned fish, fine. You know, all of those sorts of things. So this was really (laughs) very unexpected and really, really exciting. And people were reporting that it was the first time in years that they'd sort of got off the couch and felt better. And we still get reports years later from people who were in the trial who say, it just changed my life. So it had a very profound impact. So that was super exciting and that had a big uh, impact in the media. And I think people were so ready for something. If you think about all the risk factors for mental disorders, they're things that people find difficult to change, genetics, poverty, etc. This is something that people could go, oh, I can do this for myself. Mm-hmm. And you're taking the emphasis away from body weight. You know, no one in the SMILES trial lost weight. This was not a weight loss diet. And yet they experienced a major benefit. Now, soon after that, a trial with a larger sample size was published, found the same thing, really big impact on diet quality, on mental health, that it was also highly cost effective. And then since then, there's been two more trials in people with depression. The first in young people, college students, who you wouldn't you know, like they're mm, a difficult mm. group to influence. Yeah. And they really did improve their diet and they did it really fast too. And we know this because what the researchers did was they measured carotenoids in their palm and they could see that they increased their fruit and vegetable intake. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was cool. And then they also got this big benefit to their mental health. And then the most recent one, the AMEN trial, this was done in young men. Now, young men are really difficult to get to change their <laughs> diet or to pay attention Yep. But again, for them knowing that this might influence their mental health, they did it. Big impact. Again, they were moderately to severely clinically depressed. Big impact. 
very similar effect sizes. So we're talking, you know, a big impact on depressive symptoms of dietary change. We also did what's called a meta-analysis where we looked at all of the research where they changed diet and they happened to have measured depression and in some cases anxiety symptoms, even though the people didn't actually have like depression per se, they might have had another health condition. That confirmed that dietary change seems to improve depressive symptoms. So this is very cool, but, but we need placebo-controlled trials. Mm. And these are really difficult with diet and they're very expensive and we're trying to get funding. And actually, one of the reasons I'm here in the UK is because I'm working with um, Tim Spector, Sarah Berry, the group at King's College. We've got an expression of interest in with the Wellcome Trust to try and get the funding to do a big clinical trial with actual blinding. And so that will be really important. If we can get that funding through, that would be fantastic because it'll give us more of an idea too of how things are working, you know, taking lots of samples, microbiome samples, Mm. blood samples, these sorts of things and saying, okay, change diet, what's changing in the body and how does that relate to changes in mental health? So these are the studies that still need to be done. Mm. But we already have enough knowledge now to know that you can alter diet to both prevent and treat mental disorder, common mental disorders. We're doing work in other conditions such as psychosis. Uh, We've just finished a very important trial in Australia looking at whether diet and exercise support is at least as good as psychotherapy. And that's we've got that coming out very soon. So that's very, very interesting. We've just finished a trial of fermented dairy versus placebo fermented dairy and looked at the brain and what happens in the brain. That's super cool. So that will be coming out soon. We've got another study where we looked at um, very low-calorie diets that are often prescribed to people who are having to go through bariatric surgery or what have you, and a whole foods version versus the traditional type, which is um, ultra-processed you know, shakes and mm-hmm. bars, and looking at the impact on the gut microbiome. We've got a whole host of very, very interesting studies coming out because, of course, a lot of things was put on hold during mm-hmm. COVID, so it's, uh, it's a really exciting time for us. Gosh, it's I just like please tell me the results of that those two <laughs> studies. Please give us some insight. I hope I'm hoping they're both positive. I mean, I've never suffered depression myself. I've suffered with anxiety, but I've had many close people to me really suffer with depression, and it's completely debilitating. Mm. And that's one mental health disorder. There mm. is so many, and I think. Many times we can feel lost, we can feel alone, we can feel helpless. It's such a privilege to be able to have a therapist every week or see a psychiatrist because oh, it's gosh, yeah. really expensive. Yeah. And so just even hearing that there is these modifiable factors that we can do ourselves, that is also not elitist. And I'm really glad you kept saying cost-effectiveness because I was thinking during all of this fantastic research you're citing, many listeners might be thinking, well, it's really expensive to eat healthily. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling to eat well because I feel like it's not an option for me. And I do think it's really important to highlight that because as you mentioned, there is many elitist ways to eat that are really expensive. And sadly, that's very media driven um, and sometimes very celebrity driven on the yeah, things that actually we should be consuming. But actually we're really kind of breaking it down 
bulk buying. I love that you mentioned frozen foods because actually sometimes they can be more nutritionally dense than the fresh foods because they're locked in the nutrients when it's harvested. And so bulk buying frozen veggies and also bulk buying things like oats. Remember we used to put barley in our stews. I mean, you get those slow cookers. We get them from the op shop or even just, you know, the store for like $20. They're so cheap. Yeah. On a Sunday, you just throw in whatever veggies you've got. In the fridge. In the fridge. Chuck it in. Barley. Um, some legumes and a tin of tomatoes, a bit of stock. You could put in some mints if you wanted to, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just let it cook overnight. There you've yeah. got lunch for the whole week, you yeah. know. It's these small tips and tricks, mm. isn't it? Whereas sometimes the, the cross-messaging can make it feel actually quite secluded for many people. Mm. And so I just think kind of hearing all of that and then actually mm. we can, we can do something. And it might not work for everyone, but we can do things to actively try and modify our mental health, I just think that gives a lot of hope in yeah. times when actually people might not have hope. Yeah. But people also shouldn't be too hung up on it too, you mm. know, like I love ice cream, <laughs> you know, or... You, Especially you when it's 28 degrees outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your diet doesn't have to be perfect, but it just needs to, if as much as possible, consist of real food, not yeah. Franken food. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because you mentioned two different subgroups there, the younger generation and the older generation. And obviously I'm in my 30s and I'm thinking my generation now are just completely obsessed with Deliveroo. And also at that time, you know, that isn't as nutritionally dense as home cooking you're not sure where your food's Mm. coming from that was a big one that you spoke about you're not sure about actually how long that's been cooked for or how long it's been sat Mm. there the nutritional loss of the food when it gets to your door but you know you can also make good choices if you if you're going to go take away um you know my daughters are both really love food and they are very health aware but they'll still get delivery or what have you but they'll just do it mexican you know something that's got lots of beans and things like that (laughs) But then I now know, know why they call you Beans. Yeah, Professor Beans. <laughs> <laughs> this is your buzzword. <laughs> there are some really great takeaway foods, and I think mainly in the Mexican sort of, but Indian as well. Like I love Indian food. So really good quality food from all different parts of the world. I mean, a healthy traditional Japanese or Chinese or Brazilian or whatever diet all look a bit the same in that they're pretty high in um, plants, Often beans, rice, different types of vegetables, maybe fish if that's, you know, part of the culture, but low in ultra-processed foods. So they look different all over the world, but the heart of them is similar. Mm. It's real food, hopefully a bit of variety, but foods that have um, lots of phytochemicals and, you know, the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And that they're not adulterated and they're not broken down into constituents and then re-put back together again with a whole lot of other things that you don't need. (laughs) That's the big thing, isn't it? So a lot of people I feel who might be listening to this might go, oh, well, I can't eat that because it really triggers me. Or, you know, I I get heavily bloated when I eat too many Mm. beans. What would you say to those people that are listening that suffer with IBS or more severely IBD and actually really struggle to consume these I foods? I would really recommend that they see a dietitian. <laughs> Dr. Heidi Stoudacre in our team, she did mm-hmm. her PhD at King's College in London, is really one of the world experts on IBS and diet and the gut. And now she's really looking closely at mental health because depression and anxiety are highly comorbid with IBS, meaning that they very often go together. Mm. And, of course, you've got this bidirectional communication between the brain and the gut. They talk to each other all the time. So if you're really stressed or worried or what have you, that will affect your gut and vice versa. So 
you can actually do a, a top-down and or a bottom-up approach, like <laughs> literally. Um, so the top-down are things like hypnotherapy, antidepressants, relaxation, all of those things that are apparently helpful in IBS. I'm not the expert Mindfulness, here. meditation. Yeah, those sorts yeah. of things. And you can also take dietary approach to it. I think, again, there's some really interesting data that Heidi's generated from a trial that she's done that's not yet published, so I can't talk about it, but it, it addresses this very thing. There was a great study published last year. It was only a small study, but it was published in Cell. It was led by the Sonnenbergs, who are a fantastic duo over in, the, in America who are microbiologists, I think. And what they did was they took Americans who largely have a really terrible diet. We call it the SAD, the standard American diet. <laughs> and they wanted to see whether they could increase the diversity of the gut microbes and reduce inflammation through dietary approaches. So one group were um, helped over a period of two or three weeks to increase their intake of fermented foods. That was the only thing they changed, fermented foods. So yogurt, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, etc. Um, up to six serves a day. And now, remember, a server only needs to be small. And then the other group were helped to in increase the amount of fibre in their diet. So whether it was lentils, beans, you know, grains, these sorts of things. And what they saw was that the people in the high-fermented foods diet, their gut microbiota diversity went up and their inflammation went down. So yay, that was a win. In the other group, the high-fibre group, some people did really well, um, inflammation down, diversity up. Others did really badly. And they thought, well, hang on. If these people have got like a, a desert-like microbiome mm. or a, a microbiome that doesn't have the bacteria that we know that are needed to break down fibre because that's the primary role of the gut bacteria is to break down the bits of food that our human enzymes can't break down, which is primarily fibre from complex carbohydrates and also the polyphenols from the plants. If they don't have those bacteria, they're not going to be able to break the fibre down and mm. that could cause a problem. They thought, well, maybe there might be undigested fibre in the stool, which would tell us whether this is true or not. And that's what they found. So if people had low diversity to start with, they just did not do well with a high fibre diet. And so again, you'll see people saying, I can't eat that, I can't eat that. Now, that may well be true. Mm. So you need support to be able to improve your gut, whether it's both, I would say, top down and bottom up approaches. Mm. So relaxation, hypnotherapy, all of those sorts of things that we know are really helpful for people with IBS, but also very, very gradual changes to your diet. If you're going to introduce fibre, do it really slowly. Take little bits of fermented foods with the high fibre foods so that you're helping your gut to start to adapt. I love that tip. Yeah. I'm, Take and, fermented foods with small bits of fibre yes. and also drink a lot of water because, again, drink that's a lot really of water. important. Now, I should specify there's no research to confirm that yet. This is just a, a hunch based on what we see so mm. far in the literature. Mm. It's certainly worth a go, but this is where dietitians are so important. People go on these low FODMAP diets. They're never meant to be more than short term. Six weeks, yeah. Yeah, but people just stay on them and they avoid FODMAPs. But FODMAPs are actually key food for the gut microbes. Mm -hmm. You don't make, you're only going to make the problem worse by mm. avoiding them. Mm. So I think that that is a strategy that hopefully will be tested soon and people will be able to actually go, okay, so this for me might be helpful. I think it's also just really important where you kept emphasising 
slowly introducing because I do think sometimes we hear something we go right that's the answer let's just have as much fiber I'm going to have as much fermented foods in my diet as possible and then all of a sudden our gut goes what's happening oh yeah and it becomes you will get a tummy ache I can tell you right now (laughs) becomes completely overwhelmed and then it's working in treble time yeah Um, and so I do think anything regarding your diet hence why you've mentioned dietitian it's really important to see somebody if you are making quite big changes to your diet please Mm. see someone who can hold your hand and offer you advice and support um but again small things you know what else is really interesting i just thought of it so heidi has um, recently secured research funding to look at the nocebo response so you know placebo you know that placebo response is a real thing Mm -hmm. i mean your body your brain will manufacture molecules it will do things quite physically in response to a belief that something is good for you. It's a tablet or something's going to do something. There's also nocebos. If you think that something's going to hurt, something's going to make you feel sick, something's going to give you bloating, something's, you know, nocebos are a thing as well. Very much a thing. Wow. So that's something to also consider is that people assume that something's going to disagree with them or that they can't eat that and that may in itself induce that response. Mm-hmm. We don't know this for sure. We're going to investigate it, but certainly we see it in other aspects of health. It's such a big point to bring on because we had um, somebody on last season who spoke a lot about kind of her mixed messages when she was growing up around the food and the good food to eat and the bad food to eat. And I think we we do grow up sometimes reading media, listening to our friends, making our own judgments. And actually, as you just said, that can have a massive profound effect when actually we could be fine. Yeah. And bringing these concepts together and just talking about it Mm. is actually really powerful. Maybe there's a way that when you're eating your fermented food with your fibre, you're telling yourself a positive mantra at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I think that could be the next research trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Bringing all these things together, you know, science is slow. It's often boring. Well, it's not boring. I don't think it's boring, but I'm a giant nerd. (laughs) But it's expensive, you know, it takes time and often science will contradict what's come before. And and the general public finds that really confusing. But for something as complex as the human body, something as complex as diet or any of the exposures out there, um, there's a lot to know and science can only do just a little bit at a time. So, you know, we build up our knowledge. But you have something called converging evidence, which is when, you know, the animal studies, the observational studies, the clinical trials, they all start to add up to the same picture. Mm -hmm. And as far as nutrition goes, um, you've got the precautionary principle as well. And that means if you know that something is not going to do harm and you think it may do good, you should, you know, really promote it. Because if uh, eating a healthy diet isn't good for your mental health and all the research to date is wrong it's still going to be good for your physical health. So you're not going to lose by doing that. But certainly the evidence is very strongly in the the camp that what you eat really matters to your mental and your brain health. And excitingly, we're starting to understand how. Mm. And this is where the gut comes in, but also things like the brain imaging studies and the the hippocampus and, you know, the immune system and all these other facets. It's all so interlinked. And I know that you're basing so much around this conversation, which I love around food, because food is first. And as you said, it's such a complex integration of so many different things in that one food it's not one isolated nutrient but psychobiotics can we just touch upon this which many people might have heard that term but it's very much basically around probiotics and 
what we could be adding in um, to help that gut bacteria. What's your view on that? It's tricky. I've got um, friends, really good friends, colleagues who do research in this area and they they start with animals and then they're sort of just starting to move into the human trials. Mm. The thing is we know so little in the the gut and let's not even get into the mouth and the skin and the lungs and everything Mm. else, but in the gut... You don't just have bacteria, you have viruses, phages, you have fungi, you have archaea, you have all these other microbes. Mm-hmm. We're only just starting to figure out that they're even there, let alone try to understand what the hell it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. We're increasingly recognising that the type of bacteria may not be the key thing. It's what they're doing because different bacteria can do lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And it, they'll differ depending on what's going on in their environment, what other bacteria are there, what the balance is. It is so complex. I personally worry about introducing individual bacteria or consortia of bacteria without a good understanding of those systems. There is, though, uh, evidence at the level of the systematic literature review to suggest that uh, probiotic formulations can be helpful for people with clinical Um, disorders or clinical depression, I think the systematic literature review found, but not just for general population level. Mm. But I think we need to get far more specific. What bacteria, for who, under what conditions, Mm -hmm. but really is it just going to be one or two bacteria? It might be. might be that you get these fantastic super bacteria species. I mean, even, you know, close colleagues of mine who are really experts in this area, the world leaders, people like Professor John Cryan, they'll say 99% of the the bacteria that you might get in a pill or whatever won't do anything. Mm. But finding that one or that set that might do something is obviously a really important thing to to investigate. Yeah. But I would say in the absence of that knowledge at the moment that the best bet is to feed your microbes and do that with the the good foods and the the fermented foods, the traditional foods that we Mm. know have been used and linked to good health for millennia. Mm. Which also come under the, you know, the umbrella of prebiotics as well, which is the food, the food concept of it really, actually feeding your gut microbes, as you said. So it's not not a food desert. So it's a flourishing field. That's right. <laughs> and when it comes to prebiotics, the um, latest reviews suggest that prebiotic supplements don't do anything for your mental health. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's, you know, a supplement is very different to a food. But it's interesting because you can, all the prebiotics are in the food. That's right. So... People do it as a shortcut because yeah. they go, well, maybe if I do that, then I can still keep eating the McDonald's. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. they don't. It, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, we've heard it from the back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and also, I know that I want to make sure I get this in because it's quite an interesting topic. This came. I remember this came into my kind of vicinity about eight years ago. Just the discussion. Obviously, there's not really been that many studies at that point, and even until now, there was no published control studies looking at fecal microbiota transplantation, which I'm going to call, for very simple terms, FMT. Yeah, or poo transplants. Or poo transplants in people experiencing depression. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us through what your kind of recent research is showing us in this area? Very exciting. This is super interesting. You know, I could talk about it for ages, but we, we know, for example, that if you take poo from people with major depression or schizophrenia, put it into a, an animal like a rodent, you can actually induce the behaviour of phenotype and a lot of the biochemical changes that you'll see in a human with depression or with schizophrenia. So you can basically give them, to some extent, that disorder. 
We also know that faecal transplants are commonly used to address some very, very serious bowel disorders, C. difficile in particular. This is a really nasty, potentially fatal bowel disorder that can happen when people have just had too many antibiotics because, you know, medical reasons. And faecal transplants work incredibly well. So in Australia, we've got a national stool bank now, and I'm on the advisory board for that. It's the same big national organisation that does our blood bank. So they provide stool to hospitals for people with C. difficile, but they are also wanting to support research studies, and we've been trying to get funds to do a faecal transplant uh, in major depressive disorder, to do a trial. Now, we've got two published case studies in Australia, people with two people with long-standing bipolar disorder who um, gave themselves FMT and who experienced astounding um, cures, if you like. Wow. So one of them, Jane Sullivan, she um, had 16 years, I think, of bipolar disorder, really severe, in and out of hospital. And then her husband, you know, donated the poo. I wouldn't recommend it because you can get all sorts of nasties, but she's been well now for four or five years, like totally well. And there's been another case study just published showing a similar thing. So you're seeing these case studies and you're going, wow, this could be really important, but we need to test it. We need to do it in a proper randomised control trial. So in Australia, it's taken about three years to get the TGA approval for the stool bank. And now we need to test it. But to get the money to do a proper trial, which will be three and a half million Australian dollars, it's very expensive. You need to do a feasibility study. You want to make sure that the way you're going to do it is actually feasible, that you'll Mm. get people signing up to do it and Mm -hmm. that they'll be happy to do it and that you won't get adverse events, you won't get anything bad happening. So that's what we did. We did a feasibility study. We recruited 15 people with severe major or moderate to severe major depression and they randomly assigned 10 of them to get the real FMT or five to get the placebo FMT and nobody knew which was which. And um, to do this, they had to come to the clinic four days in a row and get four enemas, four days in a row. So it took about half an hour. Um, But this is a lot less invasive than a colonoscopy and obviously a lot less expensive as Mm. well because people don't have to have surgery. And we had no problems recruiting. We had, I think, 160 people on the waiting list within about five minutes. You know, there's just such an unmet need. So many people, you know, living with these disorders and they're so unwell and they cannot uh, find help Mm. um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, No adverse events. Everyone said they would do it again in a heartbeat. Nobody dropped out. Everyone got all four enemas. was great. Because it's too small a sample size, we can't tell if it's affected their mental health or anything else, but we could say that the people who got the, the real FMT, there seemed to be an increase in quality of life and a reduction in gastrointestinal symptoms. Wow. So now I'm working with three other groups, uh, two other groups in Australia, in Victoria where I live, So we're trying to get funding from the state government to do these trials in those particular conditions because we're all quite convinced that we might um, get a positive outcome. Just with all of this new research, thinking in the next 10 years how much this is actually going to pioneer, hopefully, mental health treatment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I would hope so because it's a win-win, isn't it? Yeah. it, it, It benefits mental health, physical health. In the case of diet, certainly very cost effective. Mm-hmm. We have in Australia now been talking just to the, the federal government just in the last couple of weeks about 
really doing things differently, um, reimburse dietitians and exercise physiologists mm. to see patients with mental health problems. And this is, relates to the trial that we've got coming out soon. Wow. Very, very interesting research. We'll have to have you back on for a snippet just to talk about this new trial because you think, keep teasing me yeah, and it's really in, not in fair. In another six, <laughs> six months or so, we'll be in a much better position to talk about a whole host of new studies. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be able to be here in the studio in person and yeah. I love coming to London in summer. It's so nice. I'm so pleased that we managed to get Felice Jacker onto this podcast. It has been one of my guests that I've wanted to get on for so such a long time because there is so much richness in today's conversation around food and mental health. Now, I have just been with her in the studio and asked her a very important bonus question. If you want to listen to this and more exclusive bonus content from me at Live Well Be Well, head over to Apple Podcasts now and start your free trial today. One last thing, I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your wellbeing journey that extra boost, and it's totally free. Go to sarahandmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description, and I'll see you on the next episode.